Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles? If you have your own Bible, that's great. If you don't, there should be some Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. And uh, why don't you turn with me to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where we are going to camp out this morning. Exodus chapter 20. We're looking, uh, oh, starting in verse 2 or so, uh, and uh, looking on in through verse 5. Glad you all are here with us. Exodus chapter uh, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be as we continue in our sermon series on friendship. Uh, better together. This morning, taking a look at yet another another threat, another threat to biblical friendship. I trust that you're there. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. So let's join together in prayer, church. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring it. Thank you for preserving it. And thank you that it is altogether trustworthy and true, authoritative and binding. We pray that you would open our hearts to it by the power of your spirit, that we would be changed people because of it, and that our friendships and the way we uh, relate both to you and to others would be changed. And Father, if there are any idols that are lurking deep down in the crevices of our heart, then Lord, we pray that you would expose them this morning so that we might turn to you, uh, the fountain of living water, and find life. We ask it in the name of Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, and King, and God's people together said, Amen. Well, uh, on occasion, uh, Shelley, in an attempt to uh, cook with healthier ingredients, time to time will take one of our family's favorite dessert recipes, say chocolate chip cookies or something like that, and she will occasionally substitute healthier ingredients just to make the dessert a little better for us. So she might do substitute chocolate chips or maybe a different type of flour or different type of sweetener, something like that. And what she'll do is she'll, she'll make these, and sometimes she won't tell the kids that she is putting substitute ingredients in their desserts. And so she'll present them to the children and and see if they uh, will eat them. Now, let me ask you a quick question. How do you think that normally goes over? Well... Normally, it doesn't go over well. You know, they they can spot those things sometimes. Mom, are these real chocolate chips? You know, we're like that, right? Oftentimes, we too are able to both sniff out and identify when we are being duped by a substitute. However, I recall there was an experience, and I think it was my firstborn, Asher, and he was pretty young, maybe like two years old. I don't remember where we were. It was a public place, uh, maybe somebody's house or like a restaurant or maybe uh, even a a store, and uh, we were going along, and there on the table was a bowl of fruit, but it wasn't real fruit, right? It was that plague, uh, plague, fake plastic fruit. You know the kind I'm talking about, right? And it looks pretty real. And so for a two-year-old, of course, it looks very real. And so I remember uh, him going up and grabbing an apple. And of course, I saw this happening. I was about to say, wait, you know. And so he grabs the apple and he takes a big bite out of it. And uh, it's, I can't make the expression that he made. But he looked at me with just with this face like, what is happening here? You know, this is supposed to be sweet and delectable. And uh, it tastes awful. You know, um, he had been duped uh, by a, a substitute, right? You know, friends, the same can happen to us sometimes in life as well. We sometimes are unable to sniff out and recognize when we are being duped by substitutes. I wonder, we have been uh, about five weeks or so taking a look at friendship uh, as a major theme in the Bible, and we have been learning about what true biblical friendship is. And I wonder, if after five weeks or so, if we are able to sniff out substitutes, 
to biblical friendships, or if we are, like my son, duped into uh, taking substitutes in place of the real thing. So if you were with us last week, you learned, uh, we began by looking at the first of two threats the first of two threats to our friendships, to true biblical friendships. And last week, we saw that the first threat to biblical gospel-centered friendship was what I simply entitled personal sin. In other words, when my sin and when your sin gets in the way of friendships, it's a threat. And we talked about hurtful speech, that of gossip. We talked about dishonest speech, lying and flattery. We talked about uh, angry words being a threat to our relationships. And we also talked about jealousy being a friendship killer. But there is yet another threat out there other than personal sin to biblical gospel-centered friendship. And it is that of friendship substitutes. Friendship substitutes, which often become idolatrous in our own hearts and in our own lives. So to start off this morning, we are going to explore rather briefly three, I call them three friendship substitutes, three substitutes that we can be duped by into thinking that it's the real thing, when in reality it is only a threat to our relationships. Three types of Friendship substitutes. Number one, we'll take a look at what I will call stage of life. Stage of life friendships. Number two, we'll take a look at shared interest. Shared interest friendships. And number three, we'll take a look at social media friendships. Number three. And then what we'll do is we'll turn to Exodus 20. And we'll see how these substitutes can often ever so subtly become idolatrous in our own hearts and lives. Again, Jonathan Holmes in his wonderful little book, The Company We Keep, says this. He says, each one, speaking of these three substitutes, each one is like wax fruit in a bowl. They might look good, but most of us eventually discover that the appeal doesn't run very deep. So he writes, out of desperation, what do we do? We take a bite into these substitutes and we recognize it's not quite what it's supposed to be. But instead of looking for the real thing, he says, out of desperation, we try to force our less than biblical relationships to provide satisfaction. Reinvesting ourselves in them and then eventually turning them into an idol. So first of all, we'll look at uh, three substitutes for friendships, and then we'll turn to look at what I will call substitute saviors. That is, how can friendship and friends become idolatrous in our hearts? Number one, let's begin with the first substitute to gospel-centered biblical friendship. I'll call it stage-of-life Friendships. Now, I'm sure you, there has been a time in your life, for those of you uh, who, who have your driver's license, you've been driving a while, where you've been driving on a road, you've been driving on a freeway, and you see a sign, and it's something like the one behind me, right? And you see this sign, and, and, and you, you, oh, you know what you're supposed to do, right? Stay in your own lane. You know that that means that if you're in the right lane, you have to stay in the right lane until otherwise, right? And if you're in the middle, you stay in the middle. If you're in the left, you stay in the left. And what that means is that obviously you can't switch, switch, switch lanes. And it means that the cars that are in that lane with you, both in front of you and behind you, well, they have to stay in your lane as well. Friends, this is sort of like what stage of life friendships are. You surround yourself with people in a similar point or a similar stage of life. And like this sign says, you can't change friendship 
lanes, right? So everyone knows their lane and everyone stays in it. So for instance, a single person only has friendships with single people and young marrieds only have friends, uh, friendships with young marrieds and college students stick with college students and senior saints only stick with senior saints. And you see where I'm going with this. With this substitute to biblical friendship, your friendship is based upon and is limited to your stage of life. Now, what am I saying? Are we saying that it's wrong to have friends with people who are in your stage of life? Of course not. That would be ludicrous, right? What, what we're trying to say is that if we pursue friendships exclusively with people who are in our lane, so to speak, to the exclusion of other Christian relationships with people in other stages of life, then friends, what we're doing is we're limiting the scope of God's design for friendship. We are basing our friendship not on our shared relationship with Jesus Christ that binds us together and our desire to glorify him, but primarily just on on social demographics. And friends, God's design for friendship runs so much deeper than being friends with people in your own stage of life. When Shelly and I were in seminary, we were uh, fairly young and newly married. And I would say we were sort of the oddballs because while we had uh, a, a few friends that were young married couples uh, like, like ourselves, our, our best relationships, our best friendships were those uh, with, with couples that I would say were at least twice our age. They had children who are our age. Uh, but because of that relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, we had this common bond. We served in the church together. We served in the youth ministry together. And they became, these, these two couples in particular, though they were in their mid-40s and early 50s, they became so near and dear to us. And it wasn't because we were in the same stage of life. It's not like we could relate to them and they could relate to us in some sense. It's because we had this common bond of Jesus. So stage of life friendships is is one common substitute, but there's another. I'll call it shared interest. Shared interest friendships. You know, oftentimes it's very natural. It's very understandable. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but oftentimes we form friendships with people that we have common interests with. Do we not? This is very natural. There's nothing wrong with that, right? So, so I like sports and you might like sports. And so we form a friendship talking about how bad the bears are, right? Sorry, Bears fans. Um, maybe they're good. I don't know. You, you like cooking, and, and that other person likes cooking, so you form a relationship over Food Network, right? Or, or, or maybe you're a farmer, I'm a farmer, so we form a friendship over John Deere. Or pick your company, right? Pick your color there. So this is natural. This is often how friendships work. Again, this is not wrong, but I think what becomes wrong is when those relationships are not grounded in and sustained by the most wonderful common interest, the most significant uh, common uh, relationship, common denominator of all. And it's, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, we can become the best of friends with people as Christians that we are very different from, right? I don't know if you've had that experience as a believer in Christ, but but some of the best and the sweetest friendships that I've had are with people that didn't really share my interests at all. Um, over the years working here, I've, I've had the privilege of working with two great elders, um, and, and over, the, over the past few years, I feel like I've developed a, a good friendship with one of our elders, uh, Dan Schumacher. Um, and though we, as I think about, I was thinking about our relationship this week, 
and it's such a good relationship, and I, and I really enjoy it. But I was thinking about it, and I kind of came to the realization that, that we're different people, Dan and I. You know, um, I like sports. I don't know if Dan likes sports. I know he's an Illini fan, so maybe he doesn't like sports. I don't know. But I like sports. Mm, I'm just low blows this morning, right? These teams. Yeah, take it for what it's worth. Um, you know, he's a farmer. I'm not a farmer. I like to eat. That's about as close as I get to, you know, to farming. He is very gifted mechanically. I mean, very gifted. He can just fix anything. And I'm like, well, I might be able to fix a a light bulb that's burnt out. Maybe, you know, I might be able to do that. So we're just different people. But, you know, we have this, I think, really good friendship. And as I thought about it, it's because, you know, we have the common interest of Jesus, and we love him, and we love his church, and so we've developed this, this great relationship. So there's a stage of life substitute, there's a, there's a shared interest substitute, but then there's a third. I'll call it a social media friendship substitute. So um, social media, this is not something we probably would have talked about 10 years ago, certainly not something we would have talked about 15 years ago, uh, but, but first off, just take a deep breath. I'm not going to tell you to get off Facebook. I'm not going to tell you to end your, your Twitter account or get off Instagram or give up texting or anything like that. So just deep breath. But, but what I would like us to consider, I had a conversation about this with, with Jane Berger, our secretary, just this week. We were talking about friendships and we were talking about the influence of social media on our relationships and how that has really shifted, I think, in, in, in a negative way. So what I want us to do is to, is to consider how social media might have influenced or shape your view and your practice of friendships. Because I think for some of us, social media has created really an entirely new category of, of friendships, which uh, unfortunately may bear very little resemblance to the biblical type that we have been talking about over the past few weeks. Because the thing about social media friendships is it, it, it tells us you can be connected with anyone, anywhere, at any time, right? There's this, this, um, idea that, that you can be as more connected than ever. You can be friends with anyone. But, unfortunately, oftentimes it can leave us lonely, even lonelier than before, disenchanted, somewhat depressed, because it really can't, I don't think it can, can fulfill God's design for true and deep friendship. Can it be a tool? Absolutely. But can it be the end all be all? Not sure. Sherry Turkle, in her article, Alone Together, identifies the problem. She says this. She says, digital connections in the social robot may offer the illusion of companionship, note this, without the demands of friendship. Did you catch that? Offers the illusion of companionship, but it doesn't have the demands of true friendship. She goes on to write, in the silence of connection, People are comforted in being in touch with a lot of people, carefully kept at bay. She says, we can't get enough of one another. That is, we can't develop the friendships that we really need. We can't get enough of one another if we can use technology to keep one another at distances we can control. Not too close, not too far, just right. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? So, friends, I just want to offer that these can be substitutes to the type of friendships that we've really been fleshing out. Not only do these substitutes, and really more than we could mention, fall short of God's ideal, but I think if we're not careful, um, if we're not careful, they can cause us to plunge even deeper into what I would call sin 
in Holmes's words, as we quote, we try to force ourselves, our, our, our less than biblical relationships to provide satisfaction and, and we reinvest ourselves in them. And he says, and we, they can become idols in our lives. So let me just uh, ask a question here. Is it possible that friendship, generally speaking, as a pursuit, and our friends in particular, you know, Joe and Bobby and Sally, could it be that friendship in general and friends in particular um, can become what the Bible calls idols or idolatrous in our lives? I would submit that the answer is yes. So here's what I'd like to do. I, w- I want us to spend the rest of our time in this sermon looking at what I will call the idolatry of friendship. The idolatry of friendship as we turn uh, biblical friendships into substitute saviors. So here's what I want to do. First of all, I want to begin with a little section that I'll call Idolatry 101. If you've been with us at Grace for a number of years, you may recall that we did an entire sermon series, multiple sermons, on this concept of idolatry in the Bible. So this is Idolatry 101. This is just a a quick kind of uh, introductory look at what the Bible has to say on this very um, repetitive, it shows up often in the scriptures, this subject of idolatry. Now, Now clearly... If you turn with me to the Bible, Exodus chapter 20 is where I want us to begin. Exodus chapter 20, clearly the Bible prohibits idolatry. So let's just begin reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 3. So what we get now is, is the Decalogue, right? It's... It's the Ten Commandments, right? We probably are fairly familiar with these. It is the the heart and soul of God's law to his people. Uh, so many of these commandments are then fleshed out in the rest of Israel's law. And notice where uh, the commandments begin. The first half of the Decalogue is about our relationship to God. The second half is about our relationship to other people. And so God begins in verse 3. And he begins by prohibiting idolatry. Let's take a look, oh, starting in verse 3. It says this, You shall have no other gods before me. Number 1. Here comes number 2 in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. In heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. I just want to point out like three or four points of interest here in this little introduction, idolatry number one. First of all, notice what idolatry is. Idolatry here in this passage is misplaced worship. That's what idolatry is. It's misplaced worship. Take a look again at verse 3. He says, don't have any other little g gods before me. In other words, I am the only God, and you must not place any false gods in priority above me, right? I am the big G God. All other gods are little G gods. In verse 5, notice the language here. Idolatry is spoken of in language of worship. In other words, what would it look like if we put other little G gods before him? Well, it would look like verse 5. You would bow down and you would worship a little G God. In other words, friends, idolatry is giving the worship that the one true God deserves to something or to someone else, some little g God. And it's born out of this innate desire that we have uh, as human beings to worship someone or something. Author Peter Kreft says it this way. He says the opposite of theism is not atheism, but what? 
idolatry. Pastor Mark Driscoll adds, We are not created to worship, rather we are created worshiping. Everyone worships all the time. While the object and method of worship varies, the act of worship does not. So idolatry is simply uh, worship uh, that has been misplaced. Secondly, notice, anything can be an idol. Take a look at verse 4, if you will. Verse 4. Would you read verse 4 with me together? I think it's on the screen. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of... Okay, so there's the word I want us to focus on. Anything can be an idol. God says, don't make an idol in the form of anything. Therefore, anything can be an idol. Pastor and author Tim Keller uh, says this in his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, anything can be an idol and everything has been an idol. And he is so true. Now, we may think of idolatry in terms of statues like totem poles of wood or silver or gold. We may think that is so past, that only happened in ancient cultures that were so different from ours. Friends, not so. In the Bible, yes, those things are idols, there's no doubt. But in the Bible, it's very interesting that we see idolatry is said to be not only the worship of some, like, you know, golden calf or whatever, that idolatry uh, is, it can be non-physical things as well. So, for instance, in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, rebelling against God, saying, God, I know what you want me to do and I'm not going to do it, is called idolatry. For instance, again, Jeremiah chapter 2, 1 through 4, there we see that Israel was wanting to be protected from foreign invaders, and so they made this treaty with Egypt and Assyria, this protective treaty. In other words, we're going to pay you money if you keep us from invading armies. And God says through Jeremiah, when you seek protection from other people and not from me, it's idolatry. Idolatry. Fascinating. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the nation of Babylon, they were mighty warriors. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, God says that their trust in their strength is idolatry. When we move into the New Testament, more of the same. We'll go quickly. In Ephesians chapter 5, we, uh, we see that um, covetousness is idolatry. In Philippians 3, we see gluttony is idolatry. And we see in Matthew chapter 6 that the love of money, all of these things are called idols. And so friends, let me ask you, an idol is not just an image in the Bible. All sorts of things, anything can be an idol. And that means that friendship and our friends can be idols as well. Third, notice idolatry in Exodus chapter 20 is revealed both in our actions and in our attitudes. Notice verse 5. So don't have any other gods before me. Don't make an idol in the form of anything. And then verse 5, you shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. In the Old Testament, the language of worship, we often think of worship as just singing. And it is. But it's more than that. And in the Old Testament, the, the imagery, quite literally, when you, in your Bible it says worship or bow down, obviously bowing down, you know what that means. That is to prostrate yourself before something else, right? And even in the word worship, it, it, it has the idea of, of, of bowing down. It's a physical word. And so here's my simple point. You could tell what somebody was worshiping by their actions and by their attitudes, and it's still the same today. 
we can tell what we love uh, more than God by our actions and our attitudes. So in the in the Old Testament specifically, we see three categories, three sort of action words or attitude words that indicate idolatry. First, uh, we see that we love idols. We love idols. It's a marriage image. It simply means that our primary affections, our deepest longing, what we give those to is our God, in a sense. We love idols more than God. We trust in idols that is to save us from some hardship or some perceived pain. Instead of turning to God for deliverance, we turn to idols for deliverance. And third, uh, the Bible says we obey our idols. In a sense, um, we know what God says we're to do, but this idol, this image, uh, we're going to do what it wants us to do. So we love and we trust and we obey our idols. And these are things that begin to help us to think about idolatry in general, but specifically for our sermon, the idol of friendship. So let's turn now to think about that. Can friendships and friends become idolatrous. I want us to begin by looking and thinking about the idol of friendship as a whole. I think one way that idolatry and friendship intersect is when we make having friends or making friends the ultimate goal, the highest obsession, and the the real pursuit of our lives. Again, author and pastor Paul Tripp says this, He says, when we make a good thing into an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And that's what an idol is. It's not always sin. It's something oftentimes that's very good. And we take this good thing and we make it into the ultimate thing, and then it becomes idolatrous. It's true of all things, including friendship. It's not that we want friends and that's wrong. It's when our desire to have friends is too strong replacing our desire ultimately to be in friendship with God. The great writer and author, C.S. Lewis, you maybe heard of that guy. He has this little book called The Four Loves, and it's all about relationships. And in that book, he describes for us, I think, very nicely, uh, what a person might look like who uh, idolizes friendships. He says this, That is why those pathetic people who simply, quote, want friends can never make any. He says the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. And what is that something else that we as Christians should want besides having friends? Of course, it must be God and God alone, being a friend with him. So we need to ask ourselves as followers of Christ— If our pursuit of friends and friendship has become idolatrous in our hearts and in our lives, are we looking to friendships to give us what only God can really give? Has it become so central in your life that you feel like if you don't have friends, then you cannot exist, that your life is utterly meaningless and void, or if you were to lose friendships, that somehow you would feel like you were not yourself? Is it central to your happiness? Is it central to your purpose in your meaning in your life and your very identity? If so, friends, then we may be bowing down at the altar of friendship. Well, friendships in general can, I think, be idolatrous, but let's get more specific than that. Are friends 
Bobby and Sue and Joe and Alex, right? Our friends can become idols as well. And I think one way to identify if a friend has become an idol or not, or not is to ask ourselves these three action slash attitude words in the Old Testament. Do we love them or do we trust them or do we obey them more than we do God, right? So let's, let's think about that. First, might we have a friend, let's put it this way, a friend might have become our idol, if we love that friend more than we love God, if we desire to spend more time with that friend than we do God, who is our friend, then maybe there's something out of whack. If we long for their affection, for their approval more than God's affection and God's approval, then it might be an idol. If the thought of losing that friend is scarier to you than the thought of you drifting away from your friendship with God, then maybe that friend has become an idol. Second, not only do we love our friends, right, but we uh, love our idols, but we, we want them to save us or to deliver us. So a friend might have become an idol if we trust that friend to deliver or to save us more than God, right? So Jerry Bridges, in his great little book, uh, Bookends of the Christian Life, talks about idols as substitute saviors. He says, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to, quote, save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence that we embrace that isn't God. They become our source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold on to idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. And I wonder if it could be that we are turning to our friends to deliver us from something instead of turning to God. Third, a friend might become an idol or be an idol if we serve that friend more than we serve God. And that might sound ridiculous to you, um, but the biblical language of idolatry is that, uh, is that an idol becomes that which is the absolute authority. We will obey this rather than God. And so I wonder if we think about our friends, um, teenagers, If you are obeying your friends and their desire for you to go drink at an underage party, instead of your desire to obey the law of the land, which is what God says, then in a sense, are you not obeying your friends than obeying God? Or to maintain a friendship, if we know that we have to participate in some uh, unsightly gossip or something like that. But we choose to do so anyway because we value that friendship even though we know very clearly gossip and slander and these type of words are, are prohibited. So functionally, who are we obeying? That's the question that we need to begin to ask ourselves. So we have seen over the last couple weeks two threats to biblical friendship. We've seen personal sin is a threat, and, and what I'll call friendship substitutes the idolatry of friendship. All of these form threats in our lives. We've seen that, like my child, uh, with the plastic fruit, we can be duped into, uh, n- into giving into substitutes. We often settle for these stage-of-life friendships, shared interest friendships, social media friendships, and then those can often slip into idolatry. So, friends, if we follow Christ, how should we respond if we look inside our hearts and we find anything idolatrous? A friend? A business? a relationship, a family member, anything, money, 
How do we respond when we identify these in our hearts and in our lives? Certainly, we have a picture of an appropriate response. We see that the prophet Hosea in chapter 6 said this to an idolatrous people. He said, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we might live before him. So let us know him. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain. That's what we do. We turn from our idols in repentance and confession, and we seek after the Lord to know him and to love him. So here's how we're going to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to sing a song of repentance. We're going to sing a song telling God that we will turn from our idols, and we want to know you more than anything. So as they come, would you pray with me in preparation to close our service, please? Father, we have uh, looked at a subject matter this, this subject matter of idolatry that I think all of us, if we were honest, could identify with and even still can identify so many things that are in our hearts and in our lives that take first place above you. Lord, help us to do what your word says, to turn from it, to seek after you more than anything. And so be pleased by our hearing and by our singing now and by our lives together, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Stand and sing, church.